0: Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I said last week that during the season of Lent, which will begin shortly, we're going to have a series of sermons on the teaching of Jesus. And I'm using the Lord's Prayer as the way in to that teaching. And the Gospel reading today from Matthew's Gospel, of course, is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It is um, a part of the teaching of Jesus, given very clearly to us. But today I want to give a kind of introductory sermon to the series. Um, There is, you know, all the difference in the world between knowing something in the mind and realising it in the heart. When I was a teenager, I knew that people fell in love, but it was very different when I did myself. A world of difference between theory and experience. And that's exactly the same with our faith. In his quartet, Little Gidding, T.S. Eliot says, We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. The end of all our exploring is to start all over again. It's other words that we keep on discovering new truths as we grow. One of the best known stories in the whole of the New Testament is, of course, the story of the prodigal son. Actually, I think we should add an S to that, the prodigal sons, because both of them really are featured in the parable. You know how the young son got terribly bored at home and said, Dad, I want to live in the real world. This village is so boring. And off he went and did everything he shouldn't do. Now, he knew his father. He'd lived with his father all his life. But now he wanted to be free. But he only realized just what it meant to have the kind of father he had when he came home. And instead of being condemned and given the lowest place of the lowest servant in the household, he was received with great celebration, the son had come home again. And his big brother too, who'd done his duty so faithfully. When his younger brother came home and was forgiven, the big brother felt cheated. I've earned better than this, and I've earned much better than he had. So why on earth would you celebrate him? Why don't you celebrate me? I'm faithful. I've looked after Dad all his life. But he didn't understand what it meant to have a father who wasn't just interested in doing our duty, but actually loved us and wanted us to be made whole and to be made new. They knew their father. But they only really discovered him in all his fullness when they experienced that forgiveness, that acceptance, and the depth of that concern. Now, the Bible is full of stories of people who are being saved from slavery to freedom. That's the story of the Exodus, which is the key story in the whole of the Old Testament. The Jews were given the promise that God would lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. They would be set free from being imprisoned and slaves in Egypt. They would go to the land that God had prepared for them. And the same image is used in the New Testament because the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is actually saying, I have come to redeem you from slavery to sin and selfishness and to give you a whole new purpose and meaning to your life. The chance to start again and a new strength to be made whole and to be made new. One of the best things I ever heard from one of my teachers when I was a theological student was when the professor said, your job is to make the familiar strange. Now there we were, all training to be ministers or teachers. And the last thing you expect to be told is that your job is to confuse everybody. I always thought that the job of the teacher and the preacher was to make things real to come alive so that people could understand them with more insight. But then the professor went on to explain what he meant by making the familiar strange. He said, the real problem is, when people come to church, they've actually almost been gospel-hardened. They think they know the truth, and therefore they don't really listen if they think that they know what you're going to say. Why bother to hear it all again if you know it? And our job is to make the story of the gospel and the truth of the gospel so alive and so vital that people can see it in a new light and say, I knew that in one sense, but there's so much more to my understanding of it now. It's come alive in a new way and with new power. And so what I want to do throughout the whole of this series is to make the familiar strange, to help you see things in a new light, to open the windows so that that light will come and there's new insight into old truths. And one of the people I have found most helpful in bringing insight into the Lord's Prayer is Anthony Bloom, who used to be the Russian Orthodox Archbishop based in London. And in his book, Living Prayer, he says that the Lord's Prayer is not only a prayer, but also a whole way of life expressed in the form of a prayer. In other words, there's much more in it than we ever dreamed possible. And he does something very unusual. He takes the Lord's Prayer and he says, I want you to go through it back to front. Start at the end and finish where it normally begins. And then you see the way in which the human mind and the human heart goes through the searching to the finding of a living relationship with the Father. And so I went through it in one of the talks I gave. And the lady was heard muttering as she went out of church that morning, I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer as I always have and start at the beginning, I'm not going to start at the end. But of course she'd misunderstood everything that was being said because what he was actually saying was start at the end and then trace it right the way through until you come to an understanding of what it really means to call God our And Archbishop Anthony links links this to the exodus in the Old Testament and our own contemporary spiritual search. He talks about journeying through the wilderness as a forming place for the people of God. And not surprisingly, the children of Israel took 40 years before they were ready to enter the promised land. There was a lot of learning that they had to do. But then in the New Testament, we read that Jesus, after his baptism, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. Jesus led by the Spirit, but tempted by the devil. And that's a very important distinction. The Father and the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness because it is the forming place of the people of God. It's the place where sometimes we have to look within, deep within, and see the bundle of contradictions that there is in our life so that we can actually work through and come to a position of wholeness. Jesus, for example, had the three major temptations that we read about in the Gospels. All of those temptations were Jesus wrestling with what it meant to be the Messiah. Jesus wrestling with the methods that he would use to communicate the message that God had given to him. And you know exactly what they were. There he was, surrounded by the stones in the desert, and if you've been to the wilderness of Judea, there are plenty of stones still there today, and you could understand what a vivid illustration that would be. He said, why don't you turn the stones into bread? And Jesus refused, because that would have been superficial, just to feed the physical body, when he had to feed the heart and the mind, and help people find God. And then he was led up to the top of the pinnacle of the temple, a high point at the temple in Jerusalem, and told to jump down and the angels would rescue him and all the crowds would cheer. And Jesus says, I'm not in the business of gimmicks. I want to touch people in a far deeper way than that. Then he was led to the top of a high mountain and the devil said to him, look at all these countries round about you. I'll give you power over them all if only you use my methods. And Jesus had said, how on earth can I use the methods of evil to communicate the truth of God's goodness? This was a time when Jesus was wrestling with what God was calling him to be and to do. This was a time for focus, self-discovery, strengthening and being equipped by God. Harry Williams, an Anglican priest, wrote a book called the true wilderness. And in that book, he's talking about the wilderness within our lives, the inner turmoil through which we go, the inner tension of our own personality. And he stressed the need to move away from what he calls the funk hole of objectivity into the reality of personal faith. He says, God can never be the outside kind of truth, the conclusion of a philosophical or scientific investigation. For cool head and cold heart never yet led any man to know any sort of love, least of all the love which surpasses knowledge. Such theological objectivity is an attempt to keep God out, because his love will confront us with our full selves and we all have our skeletons in the cupboard. In other words, it's all too easy to learn the theory of our faith, the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the creeds and the development of theology throughout the ages. But if we don't let it touch our lives, we're not really wrestling with it at all because it's never meant to be something that we look at objectively. It's meant to be a way through which God's Word can come alive in our own hearts and in our own minds. Moving through the wilderness in our searching may well be a necessary step on the way to knowing God as our Father. A few years ago, I had a colleague who was taken very seriously ill and had to go into hospital. He was in and out of hospital for well over a year before the medicine that he'd had and the treatment that he'd had actually did what was necessary, and he came through it and was able to resume work again. When I spoke to him, he said to me, Well, Peter, it was tough while it lasted. It was, for me, a real wilderness experience. If I had my life over, I'd go through it all again, though, that there are some things you can only learn on the anvil of human suffering. I'd go through it all again, even though it was a living hell, because this was the time of discovering new depths in myself and in my faith. And maybe that's similar to what Paul meant when he said that we can only know the power of the resurrection if we know also the fellowship of his sufferings. Great, a famous uh, American TV preacher had a slogan that summed up the whole of his ministry. He was one of the best. There were pretty awful ones as well. But he was one of the best of the TV preachers in America. And he called it this... Tough times seldom last, tough people do. And the whole point of his message was that it's the Christian faith that makes us tough so that we can cope when the tough times come. Well, that's what it's all about, this wilderness experience toughening us up. So let's look now and take the example of Metropolitan Anthony Bloom and take the Lord's Prayer and see it from the other end, backwards. But you can still go on praying it the normal way, but this really is just a way to look at it. It starts with the journey to the promised land, and we're all on that pilgrimage, moving towards a living relationship with a living God. And we start the prayer, therefore, with saying, deliver us from evil, and many people, when they turn to prayer, perhaps as they only do occasionally, it's usually when there's some kind of crisis in their own lives or some kind of evil in the world that they're worried about. If, for example, this business with uh, the ISIS movement, as it used to be called, the terrorism that we experience, it would be so easy for people to say, the world's such a pretty awful place, we'd better start praying hard because we're very concerned about what's happening in that part of uh, of the world of today. Or it may well be that we're concerned about somebody else who is very sick, and we pray for them at this particular time, and that's right. And we're saying, in effect, Lord, deliver us from evil. We need your help. And that's very often the beginning point when we pray, or the beginning point when we first start to come to God and say, Lord, I need faith now to keep me going. It's very interesting that during the war, although many people found it very difficult uh, to, to, to hold on to their faith, many others were so awe, you know, awfully touched by the horror of war that it drove them to prayer. And it drove them to faith. And many an army chaplain would say there are very few atheists just before they go over the peak you know, into battle. And I think that's very, very true. So it starts, deliver us from evil. And then we move on to lead us not into temptation. Now many people think that's a bit strange. And people have said to me, why on earth do we have to say that? Surely God wouldn't lead us into temptation, would he? He doesn't want us to give in to temptation. He wants us to stand firm when the time of testing and trial comes. So why do we say that? Now I would suggest that one of the problems is that the script that we have in scripture is translated very accurately. But they didn't have any punctuation in the first few centuries AD. And punctuation was added to the scriptures much later, a few hundred years after the translations were being done. And so therefore there was no comma in. But if you put a comma in that sentence, it makes a lot more sense. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then it makes sense. Because God wouldn't lead us into temptation. I know the Spirit led Jesus into temptation, but only so that he could actually come through it because the wilderness is the time for toughening us up. And so we're saying, Lord, lead us. Don't let us fall into temptation. We want to be delivered from evil. We want you to help us as we wrestle in our our weak situation. So we pray for strength in our weakness, for protection and deliverance. And then we move on. Because having found God, yes, we've become more and more aware that there's a battle going on. That there's a conflict between good and evil, between our highest ideals and our low motives as well. And so we need to ask for forgiveness So we pray, forgive us our trespasses. We need time to err. We need time to repent. We need time to be challenged and to get on to the right way. And then we need to realize that if God needs to forgive us, then maybe we need to forgive those who've wronged us. So we have to actually start living in that spirit of forgiveness Otherwise, we're being captivated by the negative lifestyle of our old way of life. If we're not prepared to forgive others, then how can we expect God or other people to forgive us? For we're all weak and we all need help. We mustn't hold on to the negative attitudes of the past because that cramps God's work in our lives. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And then we move on to the practicalities. If we're going to keep on journeying, we need the resources so that we can keep moving forward. So we pray give us this day our daily bread. Not enough to meet our greed, just to meet our need. Come and say, Lord, we need your strength, we need the resources, and we pray that you'll provide for our bodily needs and also meet us at the point of our spiritual hunger. Give us the resources that we need so that we can keep journeying on in our pilgrimage of faith. And then we move on to thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven It's the place where God's will is done. Heaven is the realm of perfection. Heaven is the realm where the life and the teaching of Jesus is honoured, respected, and put into practice. So we say, your will is done in heaven. May it be done on earth too. And this is where we're identifying with the purposes and the will of God, and we're making those aims and purposes our own. In other words, we're saying, Lord Jesus, in you I see the way we ought to behave. But I don't want this just to be theory. I commit myself to that way of life. And I want to play my part in bringing those kingdom values into practice in the part of the world in which I live and seek to serve. Then we move on to hallowed be thy name. In other words, may I honour the name of God, the very nature of God, the essence of who God is, may I give him honour both in the words that I use but also in the lifestyle that I live so that my life says, this is the model I'm following. I'm seeking to be more and more like Jesus. And it's only when you've been through that long journey from evil through temptation longing for forgiveness through trusting God for the resources that we need through identifying with his purposes that begin we begin to realize that God is our father who art in heaven in that realm of perfection and that we trust him we've come to the mountaintop we've come to jerusalem to the place of the death and the resurrection of the master And we realize that that is the way in which he shows how much God loves us and calls us to love and to follow him. And the wonderful truth is, as Bishop David Jenkins used to say, that God is. He is as he is in Jesus. And therefore, there is hope. We have a relationship with the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. We can put our trust and our hope in him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that a very helpful impression of the pilgrimage of faith. As we journey from the times of need and difficulty and gradually realise that God is with us, leading us on and drawing us out so that we can be made whole. And like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son, He who wanted to rebel gradually realised his need. I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as a hired servant. And the father said, no, you're my son. Put a ring on his finger and a cloak of honour on his shoulder and let's have a banquet to celebrate that my boy has come home again the Father, welcoming the Son in love. Well, this story of, in the early church, when new people became Christians, they would have training in the essence of the teaching of Jesus, the teachings of the church. And that would all lead up to Holy Week. And then the Saturday, Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, they would learn and learn by heart the words of the Lord's Prayer. And then on Easter Sunday, they would be baptised. And as they went below the waters, that would remind them of the death of Jesus. And as they came out of the waters, that would be a sign of the resurrection, the new life that was offered because Jesus was raised from the dead. And it was only then after they'd experienced that baptism, that resurrection, that new life, that they could pray the Lord's Prayer for themselves. And they began with the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, the one that we've been studying, the one with whom we now have a living relationship. I was born back in the days of the Second World War. And I never saw my father until I was over two years of age because he was fighting in Burma. And every night I would be picked up by Mum and I'd kiss her and say, Good night, Mummy, or she would help me say it. And then I would kiss a picture of this man in the uniform of the Royal Artillery. And I would say, Good night, Daddy. And then I'd go to bed and I'd sleep. One day a stranger knocked on the door. And mum welcomed him with open arms and much joy and tears of rejoicing. And she said to me, here you are, Peter, this is your daddy. And I cried and I said, no. And I pointed to the picture and I said, dada, dada. Now you know that that picture was but a shadow, just an image of the real human being who was my father. But it took me weeks and months before I realised what it really meant to have a living father, what I'd known in theory gradually became an experience as the relationship came alive. Now, I can't remember that, but Mum told me, and she told me many times, and I knew that it was right, because I knew that Dad loved me, and he was real. And that's one of the reasons why it's so helpful to study this Lord's Prayer and to see it perhaps in a new light, the familiar becoming strange. Because we need to discover the Father in all his fullness as we grow in the life of faith and commit ourselves ever more deeply to him. So let us pray. And I want to use a prayer of John Wesley himself. O Lord, take thou full possession of my heart and raise there thy throne and command there as thou dost in heaven. Being created by thee, let me live to thee. Being created for thee, let me ever act for thy glory. Being redeemed by thee, Let me render to thee what is thine, and let my spirit cleave to thee alone, for thy name's sake. Amen.